holy gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to Mark. Glory, Glory to, to you, you Lord, Lord Christ. Christ. He began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things, and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes, and be killed, and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake in the Gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and yet forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? The Gospel of the Lord. Praise, Praise be to you, Lord Christ. Good morning, everyone. It's great to see you all this morning. Thank you for being here. Let me pray for us. Father, I do pray that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts right now would be pleasing and acceptable to you through your Son, Jesus Christ. For it's in his name we pray. Amen. Well, this morning we come to chapter 14 in our sermon series on the book of Acts, and we come to a story of mistaken identity. Paul and Barnabas are wrongly identified as the Greek god Hermes and also Zeus, and there's a legend behind this misidentification. The Roman poet Ovid, who lived from about 40 A.D. to uh, or 40 BC to 17 AD, almost exactly with the time of Christ, he tells the story, the legend of Zeus and Hermes visiting this very region. As the legend goes, they visited the region and they went house to house looking for shelter and for a place to stay and everyone rejected them until they came to this cottage of this old couple who received them. And, and though they were very, very poor, they, they offered them the greatest feast that they could offer them. And even the wine that they served was the best wine that they had. And they were astonished at one point during the meal to see that the wine that they served was replenishing itself. And so they realized that their visitors were divine. And so they tried to, to make a sacrifice to them, to offer them their goose. And Zeus and Hermes refused, but took him up on a high mountain and watched as they flooded the entire region with a, with a great flood that destroyed everyone and everything in that region except their house. Their little cottage became a temple to Zeus and to Hermes, and they became priests in that temple. And then as they asked, they died on the very same day, the very same hour as one another and immediately became these sacred trees. And that's the legend of this region that seems to be behind the crowd's reaction here to Paul and Barnabas. And we moderns hear this story and we think how primitive, how silly. I would never let a legend or a tale like this have that much influence over my life. But I wonder if we should be so confident about that. Because Marvel just released their latest film from the Marvel Cinematic Universe, the film Black Widow. It is number 23 in that collection that began 12 years ago with Iron Man. And this particular collection of films has made $22.6 billion worldwide, far beyond any other film series. Can you guess what the second most uh, grossing film series is? Star Wars. Sorry, Josh. Second place, only $9 billion. 
But the two greatest grossing film collections are fantasy and sci-fi, these legendary, these mythical supernatural genres. And the same is true for literature. What do you think the number one best-selling book ever is? Harry Potter. 11 of the 15 best-selling books ever are all fantasy. Now, why? Why in a world, in a culture that is in, increasingly denies the, the existence of the supernatural and the spiritual and believes that all that really exists is merely physical, it's just this material world, it's just what we can see and prove empirically, why are our favorite stories, the stories we watch, the stories we read, completely incongruent with what we say? Why do we still read and love fantasy? And how can we make sense of Jesus in a culture like this? One that denies the supernatural, but longs for it. How can we bear witness of Christ and his gospel in a culture like ours? I think Acts chapter 14 helps. And so two points this morning. Number one, vain things. And number two, Christian sacrifice. So first of all, vain things. We need to notice how different Paul's speech, his address here in verses 15 and through 17 are compared with everything else that we've heard so far in the book of Acts. Because up until this point, we've heard from Peter, we've heard from Stephen, we've heard from Philip, and now we're beginning to hear from Paul. And it's not just because it's Paul that's speaking that things are so different. In fact, one chapter before in chapter 13 is Paul's first address. It's a sermon in a synagogue and he stands up and he talks about the Bible. He retells the entire story of the Bible to these people in the synagogue. He talks about the Exodus and the law. He talks about the promised land. He talks about King David. And then finally, he talks about Jesus and his death and his resurrection. He says to them, let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is justified apart from everything which you could not be justified by the law of Moses. And that's the, the high point of his address there. But there's nothing like that here. There's no talk of sin. There's no theological words like justification. There's no stories from the Bible. In fact, Paul doesn't even mention the Bible. He doesn't quote it whatsoever. So why? Because it's a matter of context. These, Leist, these people of Leicester, they know nothing of the Bible. They know nothing of God. And, and up until this point, every address by the apostles or by a Christian has been to Bible-believing people. Even Philip, when he went to the Samaritans in chapter 8, they knew and they believed the Bible. So up until this point, the apostles are proving Jesus to Bible-believing people from the Old Testament. They can't do that here. And before I go on and tell you what Paul does do and what he does emphasize, I think it's important for us to note that it's in the synagogue in chapter 13 with Bible-believing people, like I assume most of us are here today, that Paul leads with, and he emphasizes sin and the need of forgiveness. And he doesn't do that here. It seems as though at some level, that language, that emphasis is insider language with people who know the scriptures. It's not language to outsider people on the street. That's not what, with what Paul leads with. That's not what he emphasizes. I just wonder if we Christians today, in the difference between our our, our, our conversations in-house and our conversations out on the street, if we flip it, if we don't flip it, and out on the street in our conversations with other people, with non-Christians, we don't lead with sin. We don't emphasize moral guilt, especially their moral guilt. And I just wonder, do we do that? Is that the way? Do we flip what Paul does here? Because if we do, we need to know that there's arguably nothing more damaging to the receptivity of the gospel than hypocritical moralizing, which would be what that would be. That's why Jesus in his Sermon on the Mount 
maybe half, maybe up to two-thirds of the Sermon on the Mount are against moralistic, hypocritical speech with outsiders. He talks, he says to look inside at yourself. But here's what Paul does emphasize out on the street in these conversations with others. He emphasizes vain things. Did you see that, that language there in verse 15? Vain things. It's clearly what is in reference here is the, the priest of Zeus trying to whip this crowd into a frenzy and to make sacrifices here. The word vain is a biblical word. It has a long history. It's a word that you find throughout the Old Testament, especially in the book of Ecclesiastes with that famous beginning of that book. Vanity of vanity, vanity of vanity. All things are vanity. It's the same word here. The ancient Greek translation of the Old Testament uses the same word. And this word is also an image. The Hebrew word is literally vapor. Think about that. Vapor of vapor. Vapor of vapor. All is vapor. Like a warm breath exhaled on a cold morning where you see it for a few seconds and then it's gone. You can't grasp it because it actually has no substance. It's ephemeral which I love the word ephemeral. Let's make that our word for the day. On the count of three, we're gonna say the word ephemeral. Ready? One, two, three. Ephemeral. It means fleeting. It means short-lived. Ultimately, it means empty, like your hand trying to grasp your breath and also therefore deceptive because you see it for a second. You can even feel it against your hand, but then it's just gone. Every, and this is the point, vain things, they're like that. They promise more than they can actually deliver. They promise fulfillment, but ultimately they leave you empty. And in the Psalms, this word is used time and time again for idols and for the worship of idols. Anything that functions as a God in your life, the scriptures, the Psalms in particular, they speak about it as vanity, it's vapor, a warm breath on a cold morning. And I mention all of that just to emphasize to you that I don't think that we're that different from these people of Lystra. Because how would polytheistic religious people like them decide who it was that they were going to worship and who it was that they were going to make sacrifices to? Because there was, there was a God for everything. And you chose your God based upon what you felt like you needed most from that God and what that God represented. Because there was a God of war. So who do you think made sacrifices to the God of war? Soldiers, exactly. And there was a God of commerce for businessmen and merchants. They worshiped that God, a God of agriculture for farmers, a God of love, a God of romance, a God of beauty, music, wine. Caesar was a God. If you were involved in politics in any way, you better bow down and make sacrifices to Caesar. And the point is what people then actually worship was not necessarily the God, him or herself. That was in part true, but really what they were worshiping was what was identified with the God what was behind the God, what the God itself represented. They chose the God based upon what the God represented. That was what they were after. That's what they believed would give them meaning and hope and purpose and a sense of significance. And in that light, are we that different? Is modern life really that different? Don't we still often today live for those same earthly, worldly things? Not necessarily war, but, but physical strength and athletic prowess, young men, boys, others, or for business and wealth, for wine, for romance, for sex, for children, for, for family, politics, power, beauty, all of those things. And in the end of it, does it make us anxious? 
I can't help but remember Jesus's words to Martha when I read this passage. Martha, Martha, you are anxious about so many things because ancient polytheistic people like this, they lived under a constant anxiety that if they didn't attend enough to this God, if they didn't sacrifice enough to this God, if they didn't run from this temple to that temple and this feast to this feast, and and if they didn't run from this sacrifice to this sacrifice, then maybe that God or this God wouldn't be happy enough. Maybe they wouldn't have done enough. Maybe they wouldn't have sacrificed enough. And then they wouldn't get what that God gave. It would be exhausting. But are we not also equally exhausted today? Do we not rush around and about similarly? From work to romance, from kids to parties, to exercise class or the gym, to this fundraiser or that fundraiser, to school, to vacation, the lake house, and on and on and on. And in the end, we have to ask ourselves, do all of these things, do they, do they, do they actually deliver on what they promise? Or do they take more than they give? Because everybody's gotta live for something. And make no mistake, what you give your time, your energy, your money to, that's what you're living for. And and do they take more than they actually give? We need to be honest and just admit, we, we have vain things that we live for. And what Paul says here to these ancient people is the same thing that he says to us. He doesn't say that they're sinners in need of forgiveness. They are, but he doesn't lead with that. He doesn't emphasize that. He says they're enslaved. They're enslaved to vain things. And these vain things are bad masters. They're cruel masters even. This week, I've read several articles about the bootleg fire in Southern Oregon. Have you been paying attention to this? I'm kind of a weather nerd, and so I pay attention to these things. This fire has burned over 400,000 acres. It's a lot of land, 625 square miles. By comparison, it's over half the size of the state of Rhode Island. Austin is just 300 square miles. San Antonio is just 500 square miles. So imagine all of San Antonio and more being completely burned. And this fire has become so big that it's generating its own weather. You can understand weather can start fire, especially in the right conditions. It's dry, there's, there's dry lightning, big winds, and, and weather can start fires. And typically weather predicts and controls the fire. But when fires get this big, they begin to control and predict the weather. They create their own weather. They create their own winds and their own clouds. They generate fire tornadoes as well. One of the articles said that there's, there's all of these swirling vortexes of heat and smoke and high winds. And that's what our idols do. That's what they do. We think in the beginning that we can control them and maybe we can, but after a while as they grow and they become bigger and bigger in our hearts and our lives, they become like the bootleg fire and we become like the weather. They predict us, they control us. And that's Paul's point here, that vain things are bad masters, they're cruel masters. They take more than they give, regardless of what they are, good, bad, or otherwise, whether it's career or wealth or romance or marriage or kids or politics or great grades, great art, great athletic achievement, great wine, great vacations. In the end, disconnected from God, and, and all in, by themselves, left to themselves, they're ephemeral, like a hot breath on a cold morning, gone. It's vain things. And it leads us to point number two here, Christian sacrifice. Notice what Paul does emphasize as well, and he does so in contrast to these vain things. In verse 17, he speaks about two different things, two different verbs. He speaks about giving and satisfying. In verse 16, he says, in past generations, he, God, allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways. So in other words, God allowed you to go your own way. 
He, he gave you over to the things that you desired. He gave you over to those things that you craved. He, he let you go. He let you live the way you wanted to live. He let you worship what you wanted to worship. And then he goes on, but he did not leave himself without witness. He did not leave himself without a reminder to you of himself. And he did good to you. He did good to you by giving you rains from heaven in a fruitful season and satisfying your hearts with food and gladness, giving and satisfying. In other words, all the good things that you have, even those good things that you worship, those things that you worship, the good things, they're actually from him. And the partial satisfaction that you temporarily taste and all those things as ephemeral as they are, that taste, that limited satisfaction behind it is actually God. You're satisfying yourself in a God that you don't even know because he's already given you all of these good things and you didn't acknowledge him. You didn't sacrifice to him. You didn't attend to him at all. And he's still so good. He gives and he's satisfying you, even though you didn't know that he was behind it. And what he's saying is this God is different. This God, he's different than the idols. Everything that you've been living for, he gives more than he takes. He's the one master who gives more than he takes from those he rules. And don't you want to know him? Don't you want to know a God like this? And all of this, Paul says here in the context of sacrifice. Did you notice that? Verse 13, sacrifice is mentioned. The, uh, they, they see Paul heal this man and they try to offer sacrifices to him. And everything that he says in between there, they can just barely restrain these people. For verse 18, they're almost on the brink of sacrificing them still. What I want you to see is that Paul's message is not anti-sacrifice. Paul's message is anti-vain sacrifice. He doesn't tell them that no sacrifice is necessary in their life and their relationship with God. He tells them to turn. He tells them and all their sacrificial inclinations to turn from vain things to the living God. In other words, it's not sacrifice that's vain, that's empty, that's ephemeral. It's what they're attempting to sacrifice to that is. And friends, we need to know that all religions are sacrificial in nature. All religions, Christianity, as well as all the others. All of life is sacrificial. In fact, to love anything is to sacrifice. To love anyone is to sacrifice. To refuse to sacrifice is to refuse to love. My favorite all-time quote on love is by C.S. Lewis. I'm sure you're utterly shocked that I just said that. It's by C.S. Lewis, and it's in his book, my favorite book on love, which is The Four Loves. I've read to you from it before, I probably read you this quote, but listen. He says, to love at all is to be vulnerable. Love anything and your heart will be wrung, possibly broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give it to no one, not even an animal. Wrap it carefully round with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe, or lock it up safe in a casket and coffin of your own selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. To love is to be vulnerable. And some of you are trying to live like this right now because you've been hurt. You've been rejected. You've been abused. You've got some past damage in your life and you're trying to protect yourself by not loving. But to love is to be vulnerable. Lewis doesn't use the word sacrifice, but everything he says about love is sacrificial. Anything you love, you will sacrifice to. Anything at all. What you sacrifice yourself to over and above all else, that is your God. That is what you worship. 
So the difference between Christianity and all other religions is not all other religions are sacrificial and we're not. We all are. In fact, we still sacrifice every week here in worship. Our Eucharist, in fact, is sacrificial. It's first of all, a sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving where we're coming to God and we're offering him our thanks and saying, thank you for everything that you have done for us in and through Jesus. But there's more also. One of my staff, a few days ago, we were walking out of morning prayer and she asked me, why do we say condescend to receive it from our hands? What is it that we're offering? That's a good question. She was picking up on the sacrificial nature of communion. What exactly are we offering? What is exactly that we are sacrificing? And maybe you've noticed at the beginning of our Eucharist each and every week that one of the pastors will stand down here and they will say, he will say, let us with gladness present the tithes and the offerings, sacrificial language, of our life and our labor to the Lord. And then two things are walked down the aisle given to him and he turns around and he places it here on this table that we also call an altar table because it's connected to sacrifice as well as to eating. And what are those two things that are walked to him and put upon this altar table? Two things, the elements as well as money. And both together represent all of what our lives have produced. We don't bring grape, grapes and wheat down the aisle. Why? Because that's what God produces. We, be, we bring wine and bread because we've taken from what God has given to us and we've turned it into something. We've made it into something. Our lives have produced something. And we bring money because we live in a monetary, monetized society where money represents everything about us, everything we own, all that our lives have produced. So those two things together, they represent us, everything. Everything good, bad, everything beautiful, everything sinful, all of what our lives have represented. And in giving them and offering them, we're offering ourselves through them. It's sacrificial. And the question is, the question that we have to ask is, does God receive them? Does God receive us? Does God receive you? If you were to offer yourself to him, will he receive you? And the emphatic answer of the Christian faith is yes. Yes, he will receive you. If you offer yourself in and through Jesus, he will receive you. And that's the ultimate difference between Christianity and everything else, because it's in and through Jesus. What did, what did John the Baptist call Jesus at the very beginning of the gospel of John when he saw him walking around at the very beginning of his ministry? He said, behold what? Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And then what are the very last words that Jesus utters as he hangs on the cross and dies for the forgiveness of our sins? It is finished. What is finished? The ultimate sacrifice for the forgiveness of our sins and our acceptance with God. In Jesus, God fulfills his own demand for sacrifice. Just like our Old Testament reading of Abraham and Isaac hints at and intimates whispers of Jesus. God fulfills his own demand for sacrifice. All gods require sacrifice, but our God fulfilled his own requirement. That's the difference. Jesus is the ultimate sacrifice. That doesn't mean that we don't offer ourselves fully and completely to him. What it means is if you believe and trust that the perfect and ultimate sacrifice is for the forgiveness of your sins and acceptance has been offered and you join the offering of yourself, everything about you in and through Jesus unto God, you will be received. You will be welcomed. That's what we do here in worship. What we do here in worship is we join the living sacrifice of our lives to Jesus's sacrifice. We offer that. And what does he give back? What does he give back in return? We offer everything in and through Christ. What does he give back? The very same thing, everything. 
He gives us back Jesus, the body and blood of Jesus. He gives us back his son. He gives us back his everything. He gives us his very life. Which means if you didn't get the career that you wanted or the job that you were after, if you didn't get the girl, if you didn't get the boy, if you didn't end up marrying that person that you always dreamt that you'd marry, if you didn't end up with the spouse that you wanted or that you imagined that you'd have, if you didn't end up with the marriage that you thought that you would have, or if you don't have children, you so long for children, if you didn't get on that team, kids, if you don't have those friends, or if you didn't get into that college, or you don't live in that house, if you don't have that body, if you don't have that clean bill of health that you were hoping and praying for, if you didn't get any or all of that that you wanted, so what? Ultimately, so what? I know those things hurt, but in the end, so what? Because maybe you sacrificed everything for them, but you didn't get them. You didn't do enough. You, your sacrifice wasn't enough. You weren't enough. And in the end, they crushed you in their rejection. Or maybe you got them. Maybe you got all of those things and more. And in the end, you realize that the true, real, joyful, soul-satisfying life that you need doesn't come through them. Turn, turn from those. Turn from them right now. Turn from those vain things and offer everything, all of yourself to God in Christ. You will be received. You will be received. Jesus is the only master. He is the only master that if you get him, you'll be satisfied. And if you fail him, you will be forgiven. He won't crush you. He'll receive you. In fact, that's what he came down from heaven to do, to forgive and to satisfy. That's what the Lyconians longed for here in verse 11. What do they say? The gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. They hadn't, not in the person of Paul and Barnabas. But God had already come down in the likeness of men in Jesus. And that's what all the legends all the myths, all the fantasy stories, all our movies, all of our books, that's what they all long for. That's all they all, everything that we've ever dreamt up, that's what they tell about. J.R. Tolkien, best-selling author of The Hobbit, The Lord of the Rings, he wrote an academic essay in 1938 to defend the genre of fantasy against all these academics who hated that genre, who scoffed at it because they were upset that realistic fiction wasn't beloved more than fantasy. And in this essay, it's very long, it's interesting, but it's very long, let me summarize it. Tim Keller, in fact, summarizes it this way. He says, J.R. Tolkien says that each and every fantasy story does four things. In it, people escape time and death. And secondly, they communicate with non-human beings. And thirdly, they gain a love that heals all hurts. And once you have that love, it never ends. And fourth and finally, in fantasy, good always fully and triumphs over evil. It's what it does. It's why we love it. I called one of my good friends who's a complete and total Marvel nerd this week, and I asked him about all the Marvel movies. And I said, which of the Marvel movies does these four things best? And he thought about it, and he talked about all sorts of things. I feel like he was probably drawing, drawing diagrams on some piece of paper trying to figure it out. But in the end, he just said, you know, I don't know. All of them do all of these. Of course they do. Of course they do. They whisper of Jesus. They long for Jesus. You long for Jesus. So turn to him and offer yourself to him. You will be received. You will be received and you will be satisfied. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do pray, even as we pray at the beginning of our worship, that you would come to us you would come down to us, that you would do so in and through the person of Jesus and by your spirit, and that you would raise us up.
to yourself, to the very heavenly places where you are, that we might commune with you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.